All right. You ever watch a video like that and you're like, man, I am so far off of where I need to be. Uh, That was kind of convicting for me. And that's what happens sometimes. I think, you know, obviously the Christian life, uh, we, we think that it's this and it's that, but really it's what God has done for you and our response to that. And we try to figure out, okay, if this is where Christ is at, and I look at my life, am I lining my life up to him? And so when we comparison and we take those steps that we need to to get closer to him, to closer to being like him, and so it's a lot of self-evaluation. You're going to ask yourself a lot of questions. I'm going to ask myself a lot of questions in my life, and I'm going to look at the life of Christ, uh, which is why we've been going through a probably two-year series in the life of Christ, and we're taking a break from that just a short period of time. But it's to look at the life of Christ and say, okay, what do I need to do to get closer to that? And so um, if you saw uh, our early video, the Abbott and Costello video, the who's on first comedy sketch, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third, but who is on third, no, who's on first, and for five minutes they go through this routine of just crazy amazingness, and most anybody over 40 probably remembers that skit, and especially if you're in your 50s and 60s, that skit was something that you knew really, really well. But it's a question, and I'm glad that we showed it today, and I think it's appropriate for today, because we're going to ask the question... And it's this, when it comes to your life, so when it comes to your marriage, your family, uh, your activities, your hobbies, your sports, your finances, your schedules, your friendships, everything that is entailed in your life, the question should be, who's on first? Who is it that sits in the top position of your life? Or better yet, who sits on the throne of your life? And throughout the Bible, this was a question that God would, in a roundabout way, and sometimes directly ask his children, who is on first? There's only one throne, and it's going to have one of two people on it. It's either going to be God, or it's going to be you. It's either going to be God, or it's going to be me. And when the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, when they sat on the throne of their own lives, and God would allow them to do this occasionally, he's like, okay, if you want to sit on the throne of your life, here's what I'll do. I'll get off the throne, and I will let things go down the way that they're going to go down. So he would remove his provisions, remove some of his blessings, protections, and they would learn quickly that, oh man, That was a big mistake that we just made. We should probably let him sit on the throne and we should probably just follow after him. And so that's what would happen a lot of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that that is still what's going on today in my life and probably for some of you. It's that tap on the shoulder and God saying, Jeff, (laughs) who's on first? Who, who is it? This is the life of the Christian. To constantly place God first in our lives. What God, and this is what I think is interesting. We're going to look at what God requires, but then what God desires. And so, you know, the last few weeks, you know, we started and we talked about the heart. And then last week we talked about the tithe, the 10% that the Old Testament talks about. And the reason I believe in the tithe is because 
It was the minimum requirement in the Old Testament. And here's what happens. The requirements of the Old Testament, then we look at what God desires in the New Testament, and it's always a step up. The requirements in the Old Testament are usually conditional on what we do. And the desire of the New Testament, and this is important, is based on the condition of your heart. God is like, if you line your heart up with mine and you become more like me, you're going to live a life of generosity. And that is far greater than 10% of your time. It's far greater than 10% of your gifts and your talents. It's far greater than 10% of your resources. It is going to go exponentially greater. So, which is why we started the series and we talked about God is most concerned about your heart. If you look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. And this is why when it comes down to generosity and our generosity, God wants us to give based on the condition of our heart. So when I am generous, it hopefully is a reflection of my heart. Of God being first in my life. On Wednesday night, we had revived students. And uh, one thing that I shared with the students was that for much of my life, uh, when it came to giving to God, it was done for the most part in three or four different conditions or motivations. And the first one is this, it was easy. The second one is when it was convenient. The third one, when it was out of competition. And the fourth one was when I was giving to get. And so, it being easy, it's when I had something available. So I gave it. Uh, When it was convenient, but it didn't prohibit me, and listen, this is... I still struggle with this today. When it's convenient, but it didn't prohibit me from getting what I really wanted. If I want to buy something that costs $75 and I have $100, then it's okay. If I want to buy something $75 and I have $100, and I'm like, okay, God, here's 25 bucks. Because it was convenient for me. Because what I really wanted was 75 But I had more and I, it was, it's just one of those things that you struggle with. Okay, what am I going to give first? And I think sometimes I give leftovers to God. And the other one was I would give out of competition. This is what drove me when I was in middle school and high school. I would go to church camp and every year at church camp they would say, hey, last year we gave 5000 and this year, our goal is to give the missionaries $6,000. And so we're going to challenge you. And Jim over here said he'd shave his head if you guys gave $6,000. And if you gave $7,000, he and his best buddies are going to shave their heads. And then, you know, so we're like, yeah. So we run back to our little, you know, cabins. And we grab all of our money. And we're like, yeah, here you go. We want to see Jim shave his head. And I would give out of that competition. In fact, I would save money leading up to summer camp. Because I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. I would give out of competition. Beating the record. 
Was beating the record give, you know, and giving a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I've done it as a youth pastor. But what is a bad thing is when my condition of my heart is not lining up with being generous towards God and giving for the right reasons. And then as you get older, one of my things that I struggled with was this idea of giving to get. That if I give to God, then he is going to make me rich. If you give to God, then he will bless you financially above everything that you can fathom. And there's a lot of preachers out there that are just going to preach this message. You might flip on the TV and hear somebody say, hey, if you give this much, then you know what? God is going to make you wealthy because of what you gave. And so that sounds good. You know, I'll give and God's going to give back. And this is a prosperity gospel that is not biblical. And it breeds selfishness. If I give to get, it is not actually giving, it's bartering. So God warns us about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. He says, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. And anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has, has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. And this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicion. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, and this is the key phrase, to them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. So this idea that showing godliness will lead to financial wealth, this teaching, it comes from people whose minds and their thinkings are corrupt. And they're going to turn their back on the truth. It continues, because I want to know what it really looks like. In verse 6 it says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. True godliness with contentment is great in itself, great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. So none of these motivations for giving easy, convenient, at a competition, or financial gain are what God, they're not what God desires for our lives when it comes to giving. So it goes back to the question, who is on first in your life? Who's on first in my life? And so God, all throughout the Old Testament, would talk about first fruits, which is what the video was alluding to. What are first fruits? First fruits are giving to God first, and it is giving to God your best. God wanted them to show their love and trust in Him by giving their first fruits. Now, Exodus chapter 13 is going to answer some questions that you, maybe you've had if you've read through some of the Old Testament, and some of it didn't make sense. But it says this, and starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. 
the the first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belong to me. So the Lord tells Moses, hey, the first belongs to me. Now this is fascinating and hopefully uh, you catch on to this as we read through the rest of it because if you look at verse 12, it says you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. You're going to lose it anyway. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. Here's what he's saying. The firstborn must be either sacrificed or it needs to be redeemed. Your firstborn is either going to be sacrificed or it's going to be redeemed. And God gave us two animals of this exemplary classification. The first one was a donkey. When you think of a donkey, is it clean or unclean? It is unclean. And then he talks about the lamb. And when you think about a lamb, if you grew up in Sunday school, we think about a clean, spotless lamb. So the firstborn, clean, would be sacrificed for the unclean. We'll sacrifice the lamb for the donkey. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you're probably already thinking, oh, I know, the, I know where this is going. God's going to do some redeeming. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus, God's firstborn son and his only son, is clean. He's the lamb, the perfect spotless lamb of God, clean, sacrificed to redeem the unclean, which is all of us. We're the unclean. And therefore the clean, Jesus was sacrificed for the unclean. That is the redemption process for you and for me. So the first fruits is important. God wants the best that we have to offer him. And he said, here is what it looks like. I'm going to show you what it looks like by sacrificing my one and only son for you who are very unclean. Jeff, extremely unclean for you. Now think about that because we think, oh man, he's doing that for me, a sinner? If you read Romans 5, 8, for, you know, God demonstrates the greatest love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. While we were still sinners, while we were mocking him, spitting on him, while they were driving nails, it was available to them. The other thing that is, is first fruits is not just a law in the Old Testament. It is actually pre-law. It was before the law was written. This is why a lot of people refer to it as a giving principle. In Genesis chapter 14, we see the tithe, we see the first fruits. When Abraham, uh, after rescuing his nephew Lot, 
in the process was making his way across the plains and a huge treasures that he gained from two cities that he basically thrown down on. And he encounters the high priest Melchizedek and you're like, oh, who's Melchizedek? And that's a sermon in itself that wouldn't probably even come to a conclusion. But Abraham stops the high priest Melchizedek. He drops to his knees and he bows down and then he gives a tenth of everything that he has. And this happens nearly 400 years before God delivers the law to Moses. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, wakes up from a dream and he says that surely the Lord is in this place and he gave a tenth. And you can find this in Genesis chapter 28. This is roughly 275 years before the law was given to Moses. God says, Give first fruits. And in fact, in Proverbs, it mentions it 22 times. Now, if we go back even further, we go back to the very first family, the first first family, Adam and Eve, and they have their two children, their first two children, Cain and Abel. And the boys grow up and they have different passions. But in Genesis chapter 4, it says that they both gave to God. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, it says, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of the crops as a gift to the Lord. No, remember that. Some of his crops, he gave it to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, because we have read Exodus chapter 13, we understand why God rejected Cain's offering. He had to. What Cain brought was not the first fruits. It was the leftovers. It was something that didn't cost him a whole lot. And it's a selfish heart. And this is the root of his sin. And many of you know where this is going to lead to because his selfish heart takes root and God knows it and tries to address it. And here's what God says in verse 6. He says, why are you so angry? Why are you angry? Why do you look so dejected? You You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you, refri- if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Our selfish heart is going to be the root of a lot of evil, and it's going to be the root of a lot of sin. And you can think back upon your life, and I can think back upon my life, of how I got myself into a lot of trouble, and how sin crept in, and a lot of it, was rooted because of my selfish heart. And so God gives Cain a second chance. He's like, dude, do what is right. I will accept it, and I will accept you. And he asks the question, Cain, who's on first? And if it's me, man, I want to do what's right. But of course, Cain refuses to do what is right, which leads him to allow his anger and his resentment to build, and he ends up Murdering his brother. It says each gave to God, but only God accepted only one of them. Because it was the first fruit. It was the first fruits that Abel gave. 
This was 3,000, about 3,500 years before the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And what we realize is that God does not want our leftovers. And if your heart is pursuing hard after Christ, we won't want to give him the leftovers. It would be like if Queen Elizabeth was coming to your house for dinner, what would you bust out for her? You know, would it be a, a crappy bottle of wine and some leftover lasagna? I doubt it. At least I wouldn't. I would find the very best that I had. And it should be even more so when we start talking about God. What am I going to give to God? I want to give my absolute very best that I have to offer. Now, I used to watch a TV show called Emerald Live with Emerald Lagasse. Anybody ever remember that show? All right. And he would always say, let's kick it up a notch. Some of you watched it. A lot of you didn't. And that's what Jesus does in the New Testament. And you can catch all these things in Matthew chapter 5. But the Old Testament will say something, and then the New Testament will kick it up a notch. So in the Old Testament, Jesus says, it says, do not murder. But I'm going to tell you, don't, don't murder them, but I'm going to tell you, don't even hate them. Don't be angry towards them. And the Old Testament says, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart or his heart. The Old Testament says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's one of my least favorite verses in the Bible because it's the one that I struggle with probably the most. Don't just love your neighbor. I want you to love the people who are throwing rocks in your direction. And I'm the one that wants to get up and throw rocks back. And God is saying, Jeff, you need to work on your heart. It's not lining up. The Old, Old Testament requirements of what you do And then the New Testament addresses the desire of your heart. And this applies to generosity. And one of the passages that I absolutely love is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 6, it says this. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide, this is key, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a cheerful, or he loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Not want, he will provide all you need. Then you will always have enough. You will always have everything that you need and plenty left over to share with others. And I love that. What's left over? What do we do with that? I want you to share it with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. 
Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from the ministry of giving. The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ and they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. It is too wonderful for words. This is amazing. Give from your heart. What has God laid on your heart to give? It's the question that we wrestle with is, well, why didn't Jesus specifically say in the New Testament for us to give 10%? Because we talk about the tithe. Why didn't Jesus talk about that all the time? Jesus only mentions the tithe uh, when he talks to the Pharisees and scribes in, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, who are still living under the condition of the law. Why didn't he say, hey, from this day moving forward, from right now moving forward, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give 10%. Why didn't Jesus do that? And I think I know the reason why. And it comes in the form of a question. <clears throat> do you really think the Lord of Lords stopped using the word tithe from the Old Testament and started using the word generous in the New Testament and somehow meant for it to mean less? when everything in the Old Testament became greater in the New. Because now it's a matter of your heart. Generosity is a matter of the heart. So think about this. If I gave you $100 and I said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and be generous to somebody, some family, some people. I want you to do this. So I'm giving this to you. I want you to go out and be generous. And you decided to keep 90 of it for yourself and give 10 of it away. Would we look at that and say, man, that was generous? Well, that was the tithe. But I don't think anything, any of us would say, man, that was so generous of them to give that. And so... I obviously, you know, I, I'm going to read scripture and I have my thoughts on this and I know that you guys, you're going to read scripture and you're going to have your thoughts on this and it's not to get into any kind of debate or quarrels, but I do believe that if God had just mentioned give 10% all throughout the New Testament, that's probably the most a lot of us would give when I believe that he wants so much more from my life. He wants everything that I have to offer. And so, if people ask me, hey Jeff, why do you live your life by the tithe? My answer is this, because if I don't, I won't. And that's just me being honest. If I don't, I probably won't. If I don't have at least a standard of somewhere to start, 
then my giving probably will not be consistent, it probably will not be regular, and it will not be generous. And those are things that I want. So for me, it starts there. And if you and I keep Christ first in our lives, and we ask the Holy Spirit, okay, work on our hearts, work on our hearts, and generosity will ensue. And you give according to what the Spirit places on your heart to give. So is there a requirement of giving a certain amount according to the New Testament? I, I can't find it. But I do know it says be generous. And so I'm going to ask God, okay God, what are you asking me to give? Because I'll go back to that passage You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So for a moment, just think about this and we're going to close it. What did Jesus do for you? What did Jesus do for me? Jesus was rich in every way because he's with God the Father in heaven from the very beginning. He was rich. He had everything. And he gave up the richness of heaven and he became poor by coming to the earth and he put on human flesh and he gave not 10% and he gave not 20%. He didn't give 30. He gave 100% of himself He gave everything so that we could become rich. Jesus becomes poor so I can become rich in eternal richness. He emptied himself out for you and for me. And so, if we're going to look at what Christ did and say, okay, how can I live my life more like him? My goal is going to be to empty myself out before him, to place him first in my life so that I can give generously not only to the church, which is trying to carry out the cause and the message of Christ, but to love others so that if anyone is in need, we would be able to be the church and meet those needs. And that's what a lot of you're going to see in the new new church in Acts. When somebody was in need, man, everybody, they just came, they gave so that they could provide. Wouldn't that be amazing? If we all lived generous lives, not just financially, but if we gave of our talent, our giftedness, you gave of your resources, you gave in every way that you possibly could. We only get a certain amount of time on this earth to be generous. And we're not going to take anything with us except people when we go to heaven. How generous could we be? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for showing us generosity on a level and in a way that I can't even hardly comprehend. And I pray that we will all look at how you lived your life while you put on flesh and you lived in this world and you gave 
you gave without holding back. And so I pray that we'll live our lives that way. To be generous not only to the kingdom work in the church, but whenever we see a need, we will do our very best to meet it. So help us to be generous. Help us to work on our own hearts, to focus on ourselves as we focus on you. This we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>